Richard Charkin. Charkin. Richard Charkin. North American softening of the CH. Okay. Richard Charkin. Where's that name come from? Uh, Russia, Belarus. In Ukraine, there are a lot of Chark- Charkin, and uh, it, it goes into Cyrillic quite easily. Um, but we came from um, Pitevsk, the city of my grandfather, Charkin. It's interesting. There's a lot of... Uh, well, let me finish the introduction. Yeah, yeah. You are currently senior executive at Bloomsbury. Executive director at Bloomsbury. And previously... The chief executive of Macmillan and executive director of Verlagsgruppe Georg von Holzburg. Nicely said. And started off with... George G. Harrop in 182 to 4 Eichhoven in 1972, I think, January. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Okay. Lots of Eastern Europeans have had an impact on British publishing. Why do you think that is? I'm not absolutely sure. Although I do remember early on in my career uh, a senior director of Harrop hauling me in and saying, what sort of name is Charkin? <laughs> just like I did. <laughs> like, just like you did. And I said, well, you know... Um, probably from Russia or Poland or Ukraine or ah he said and why do you think your people came here and I said well three guesses and he said well we don't mind your sort here (laughs) (laughs) which was very generous (laughs) why Um, I guess I mean you can get philosophical about it Um, I guess at one level uh, Jewish tradition by Eastern European, I assume we mean Jewish in this context. Not necessarily, but I guess that's just a coincidence. Uh, well, no, I'd say that's not the coincidence. I think it is the Jewish thing rather than Eastern European, because Judaic law, I'm not in the least bit religious, Jewish law is, is all about education. It's about obeying the law, knowing the law, in order to obey the law. Um, the idea that it is an excuse because you don't know the law doesn't hold in Judaism you actually are obliged to know it now that is education you have to read and write you have to do those things Um, so that's one aspect publishing is part of that secondly and um, I think very importantly self-sufficiency so there they were these wandering people refugees from one thing or another it is an obligation to be self-sufficient you may not rely on the state because of purely pragmatic reasons the state probably won't look after you Mm. Uh, if that is the case you have to find a business is that a pride thing as well? Um, well I don't think you can ascribe pride to races or things I'm not sure you can but but yes (laughs) probably but I mean it is part of the basic education Uh, being looked after is for other people that's an obligation on us to do that to other people not to have it done to us and so the first rule is you look after yourself. The second rule is you look after your family. The third rule is you look after your village or your shtetl or whatever it might be. And so you work on upwards. And you have to be really careful that you don't give money away. Because giving is so much more pleasurable than receiving. So you've got to be absolutely sure that you will never have to receive yourself before pleasure of charity slightly different from Christianity and that means businesses have to thrive and I think that combination also they didn't have much capital and publishing is a low capital business you can get in you can do things and if you're smart you can make money so I think that the tradition is there the other tradition in parallel is the Scottish tradition which has a lot of the same characteristics and I would think that I don't know what proportion of the business that now thrives around the world is either Scottish or Jewish, but pretty high. And again, it's a sort of reverence for education and for independence. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that actually leads into your uh, outlining of three or four of the key challenges to book publishing. And the first one is good publishing ideas. So perhaps we could dig into the Scottish Jewish roots and <laughs> find out who came up with the best ideas in your opinion. Okay, here's a brilliant idea. If you were blessed with perpetual copyright on the James Bible, as both Oxford and Cambridge and indeed Aaron Spottiswood were, it 
gave you in the 19th century a pretty decent export market, which allowed you to build branches, they were called, branches of the empire typically, and into America, and so on. Now that was fine, except it's quite a competitive business, because the trouble with the Bible is that it's not a monopoly. Publishing tends to thrive on legal monopolies called copyright. A duopoly, or a tripoly, is definitely not as good as a monopoly. So you sell a lot of Bibles, but the margins tend to be a little bit low. So if you were running one of these branches, you've got to find something else to supplement your Bible business to put in front of existing clients that would be inclined to buy something that's similar. Well, similar or... Complimentary. Uh, yeah, complimentary. You're a book person and you're going to bookshops, so you need to have something to sell to the bookshops on which you might make more profit than you do on the Bible. And the thing that happened was international education. Educational textbooks typically emanating from the UK and finding their way out into these outposts in Australia and Canada and goodness knows where. Subsets of that, so atlases. Mm -hmm. uh, I think OUP Canada's most successful, the only successful thing really, was the uh, Vancouver. Where Canada, Canada. Yeah, they, have, they do the atlas of Vancouver, you know, whatever, hundreds of thousands. Yeah. But this took an extra leap. That was always, you know, that was always a decent market. But it took an extra leap as a result of the war. And at some point, Second World Second War, War yeah, some point in Changi Jail, a publisher whose name was John Brown, presumably of Scottish descent, uh, was sharing a cell with a man from the uh, an English man who worked in the Tokyo office of the British Council, Hornby or A. S. Hornby, sorry, A. S. Hornby, Ash, and this guy had passed the time and decided that dictionaries were hopeless for foreigners because the definitions were too hard for the foreigner to understand because by definition they didn't understand the thing. So he wrote a dictionary. And at the end of the war he went and published it in the British Council in Japan in a limited edition. But John Brown hadn't forgotten this guy and rang him up or probably <laughs> took a boat to see him. going to say... He yeah. didn't text him. He definitely didn't text him. And persuaded him to hand the rights to OUP. And the book morphed over a period of time into something called the Oxford Advanced Learner's Dictionary of Current English, which I would estimate has been the single most profitable book of the 20th century, if you add up all its sales and all its margins. And what it did to the British publishing industry was then to establish ELT, English Language Teaching, as a hugely successful uh, export of, of our language. And still, still going strong. The most successful language, of the, certainly of the 20th century. Yeah, the 21st could well be Chinese, but uh, yeah. we will face that when we come to it. Yeah. It's undoubtedly the most successful of the 20th century. But it, it then spawned huge businesses. Such as? Well, Pearson is founded on it, Macmillan is founded on it, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, and indeed some foreign ones like uh, Santiana, actually are now an English publisher, in spite of being a Spanish one. And then there are a couple of um, Israeli ones, Burlington, because they all found niches in the market. They found the Greek market and the Cypriot market, and Macmillan is extremely strong in Latin America, particularly in Mexico, and, and there are subsets of this. But that publishing moment where this guy realized, yes, there really is a market, was one. Mm. Give you an example. So, as much as anything, we're talking about the good publishing idea, it was finding this genius and signing him up. Spotting that he was. Yeah. Absolutely. So, it's not necessarily spotting creative talent, it's basically looking at a potential text and realizing that there's a huge market for it. Yeah. But, you see, I, I contend about the use of the word creative. I mean, was, was Dr. Johnson less creative than I don't know who? Yeah. Um, the fact that there is a sort of temptation in our industry to apply the word creative to fiction, and yeah. particularly literary fiction. So you're defending no, the, the non-fiction side, which is, which is where you came from. Well, yeah, and I'm defending publishing. You see, we're, we're not 
at least I'm not a perceived mo writer monkey. Absolutely no, I'm not. <laughs> so there's no, no risk there. And that idea that we are actually trying to be writers and we're just publishers on the way. It's perfectly okay if people want to do it. I have nothing against it. But it's just not the way I do it. It's not the way I view the industry. Great. Training, your education comes into it a bit. I, I suppose I learned most at a stretch when I was working at, OU, at Clarendon Press, as it was then called, yeah. at Oxford University Press, where, for instance, we were never allowed to be mentioned by an author in the preface. It was against. The most you were allowed was... They would like to thank the officers of the university press. Or something. You know, that's funny. There's a parallel with the media. It used to be the BBC correspondent from right. such and such a place. Now it's all about those yep. individuals. Absolutely. The, the reason that we gave for that was, one, we didn't want to have sort of favourites growing up in the business. Um, secondly, it was ridiculous because the person in the post room may well have contributed more than the editor because they didn't lose the manuscript <laughs> or the rep who sold it first into foils so where do you stop but a, a more overriding thing was we were meant to be invisible was it was, team? the whole team was meant to be invisible the job was to allow the writer to speak to the reader with as little interference as possible that meant the typesetting should be unobtrusive but accurate that the marketing should only be such that the person can find it and then can choose to, to buy it or not to buy it as opposed to pushing it was just presenting and, yeah. and if yeah. you did a, your job right then the, the reader would come to that writer yeah, absolutely and you know in spite of all the hype and the marketing that still is true you can push water only so far up here yes you can but the hype has gotten to a point where there's such exaggeration that goes on that everything is called great, and it's what is it doing? Is well, devaluing the, devaluing the currency of the language? Well, yes. Absolutely, but, but and that's a damaging issue. But but nonetheless, I mean, if I can give you two examples of very recent books, right, which absolutely didn't succeed for four years in each case and they're both blue ones, so forgive me, but I could pick others in my mind. The first was a book called The Kite Runner. Heard of it? It did not make the bestseller list until four years after it was published <laughs> and has gone on to sell more than many, many, many bestsellers. And a very contemporary one, a book we published four years ago pretty well today, to no fanfare and nothing. We tried the fanfare, we tried to hype it, but no one was interested. And it was called Eat, Pray, Love. Now, those billboards, I've seen about ten of them on the way over Absolutely. to your place. Yeah. And we didn't, of course, pay for those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Someone yeah. else does the yeah. hype. You know, in both those cases, the reason the books worked, and, and, and it wasn't that they were unknown, they just yeah. had a low level of uptake and word of mouth, and then you get little clips like Oprah or something like that, yeah. Yeah. and that helps, but then that takes it, but it's still staggering up to, to, to where we are now, which is going to be fantastic. So... I actually think quality outs and mm. lack of quality is really spotted quickly. I, I've published some bad books in my time where we created them for the sake of making money. And you know, you usually lose money in those ones. Um, and credibility too. Yeah, credibility people forget fairly quickly. Yeah. But money, <laughs> money once it's gone, it's gone. You know, there's no, there's no getting away. From More painful, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I published a book by Naomi Campbell and it was just crap. And it was because she didn't believe in it. She, she just was not it. And if she was not it, then it had no credibility and people could see that it was a con. And they read through it. So. What about uh, some other uh, good publishing ideas? Uh, for, for example, see, Alan Lane, I don't think, came up with a particularly good idea on his own. He just pulled together various elements and the timing was right. Yeah, but that is publishing. Actually, but I, I don't know enough. I mean, lots of people have written and talked about Hunger and Lane, and I, I don't think I could add anything to that story. Uh, there's one story I know better, which is Paul Hamlin. An underrated publisher, and one who's also quite a considerable philanthropist. Huge. Absolutely, a hugely generous person. So, what was his trick? And I think there's a theme, which is that nothing's absolutely original. After the war, he became a remainder merchant. The story goes that he put an ad in the bookseller saying he'd buy any quantity of any book 
anyone had and he was summoned to a publisher and said when you say any quantity of any book you mean that? he said I keep my word so he said I, I, I've got 15,000 copies uh, any book? yeah what's the book? Uh, and this was 1946 why Japan will win the war he took it <laughs> he said the only variable there is the price I pay <laughs> anyway so he moved from that and he realised that one of the most overpriced things in post-war Britain was her music and he set up something called Music for Pleasure which was the first low price classical music Sheets. no it was records by the 50s he was German but he seemed to have very strong Czech connections and was very musical Paul realised that in the Soviet Union or the Soviet controlled Eastern Bloc there were hugely talented orchestras so he did a deal with the Czech Philharmonic and released it as music for pleasure at 21 shillings a guinea and it was fantastically successful uh, because he discovered that there is a market there for quality at the right price, which is hugely more than one might have thought. Sounds and like Naxos right now. It's very much like Naxos, yeah. But, but more mass market, actually. So um, he, he sold that and decided that he should do the same for books. And again, the Czech connection. But so yeah. good quality colour printing. In fact, what he discovered was that it was cheaper to reprint a book than to buy a remainder. But if you printed enough and you distributed them effectively... So he created Port Hamlin, which then became Octopus, and there were various sales and purchases and repurchases <laughs> and lots of activity. Yeah, and each time he made money. There was one time when he sold Octopus to Reed. I remember it. It was 300, 400 million pounds, something like that. And it was sold on the same day. The, the British Caledonian, which was an airline, was sold to British Airways, I think for 100 million. And Octopus had sold for three or 400 million. I, this is absolutely British Caledonia have planes, they have routes, they have staff, <laughs> they've got a business. Octopus is just, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you got it. So I think that the creation of high-quality illustrated publishing was one of those moments. I know, I think it's peaked and it's probably in decline now. But he was able to, again, exploit traditional expertise, that labor, that, that well, input. Of market, yeah. yeah, where others had neglected to, to look at it as a source. He also did the other thing, which is that he de-risked his business. Trade publishers now, not so much in the past, but now, carry huge risk in their balance sheet. It's called author's advances. And that is a really significant thing. And it's one of the problems we face. He de-risked his business. A, he didn't have authors. Right. There were no author advances. Yeah. B, he had cheap composition and design in, in Czechoslovakia. But possibly, most importantly, he never took stock risk. He sold everything firm. What do you mean? He would do a deal with Smiths where they took the stock. He never saw it again. He filled up more other people's warehouses with books and you can shake a stick out. That was the de-risking. His balance sheet was light, which again is quite a Jewish thing. <laughs> but, but also quite unusual in, in the history of publishing. Well, it's unusual now. In the history of publishing, no, because, I mean, the very idea of a subscription underwriting. Originally, booksellers would go out and get subscriptions, so they were de-risking, same way that Paul did it on a slightly bigger scale and indeed if you think about it the most successful part of 20th century publishing or second half of 20th century publishing was scientific publishing and that was entirely de-risked and entirely based on subscription that brings us to Robert Maxwell yep they were friends <coughs> Hamlin and no no uh, not not friends Hamlin was a friend of Murdoch shared a desk even can you imagine joint managing directors of something or other. Was there no connection? To I mean, look, I may be wrong. And I, I knew them both pretty well, and I don't think I ever heard either of them mention the okay. other. And, and they, they, they lived in different circles. Okay. Maxwell went political. Paul was more cultural, ballet opera, and all that sort of thing. And Let's scrub that then. Yeah, okay. But stay with Maxwell yeah. because of what he did with but, science. Yeah. That was another pretty good idea. Pretty good. Okay, so here's the thing. Post-war, so Maxwell was in Berlin, he realised the Springer backlist was sitting there, these journals, because in those days German was the language of science and they had all this stuff, but that needed to come out. 
Meanwhile, the British government realised that scientific publishing was an important aspect and it was a Labour government that liked to make things happen in industry. So there was subsidies available to set up scientific publishing. The subsidy was taken by a company called Butterworth. Butterworth started doing scientific publishing. After a year, they couldn't do it. And Maxwell came along and basically took that contract away from them. He created Pokemon Press, he imported the Springer stuff, and so on and so on. The genius was to know, I don't know, there are a number of geniuses there. One was that people will pay significant amounts of money just in case they need something. Well, particularly academia. Yeah, you know, many yes. of us do the same, yes. just in case. It's an insurance policy. What do you mean, just in case? Just in case you want to read it. So you have thousands of the things. You, you, you know, if you're a lawyer, you have thousands of books, you never bloody read them, but just but. in case. So that was one thing. The second thing was understanding that it was more important to be published than to be read. It was about ego then. He got it for free too, didn't he? Well, we'll come to that. Okay. The act of publishing was partly ego, yes, but partly career-driven. The science to. said, we don't care how many people read it, but how many, how many papers have you read? Yeah, okay. publish or perish. So that was the second thing he realised. The third thing he realised was that science, as opposed to humanities or other things, was where the money was. <laughs> Initially, in the first 20 years of Pergamon, it was physics. It was to do with the bomb. It was to do with nuclear power. It was security. Security, absolutely. And engineering, rebuilding, reconstruction. So, and here's, here's a moment, right? In 52 or 53, a paper was published that changed the future of publishing industry. It's a four-page paper or three-page paper. And it was by Watson and Crick. And it was the structure of DNA. Now, it didn't immediately change the future of publishing. But what it did was to say, oh, biology is important. And the thing about biology, as opposed to physics, in physics, it takes you ten years to split the atom. And you write it up, and it takes five pages. <laughs> in biology, you've got to do the left leg of the Drosophila, the right leg, the eye, the thing, the thing, the thing. There is... Just and, and you, you can publish any amount of papers. And given that the industry is paid by publishing, not by reading, the more you publish, the more money you make. So when when I joined Maxwell in '74, I was a biologist, and he said, Richard, you know, most of our profit comes from physics and chemistry. The next 20 years, all our profits going to come from biology. So we better get our skates on. And we launched, I think, a hundred journals in a year. Uh, I mean, it was just outrageous. Every day he'd come in with another half dozen. <laughs> get him out. Just get him out there. But what, like what, though? Like what? Journal Every different aspect of biology, yeah. you sort of cut into yeah. its component pieces? Absolutely. So, well, if you had a successful journal of neurology, you'd launch a journal of neurochemistry and a journal of neuropharmacology, a general journal of neuroscience, neurobiology, and then you do neuropsychopharmacology, uh, and then yeah. you do, um, <laughs> I don't know what. It's called twigging. <laughs> okay. And then, of course, each one of these has a, a significant number of colleges that specialize in well, the number of teachers. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Your market is a thousand colleges. In those days, it's a thousand yeah. colleges. Now it's all digital, but it's the same institutions. Talk about niche marketing. Uh, yeah, uh, the, there were some negatives, of course, which is that people got a bit pissed off with paying all that money. But you were the only game in town, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, if you publish that paper, that paper is unique. Someone may need it. You've got to have it. So that was the stick. But then he developed amazing publishing insights. So, for instance, with all this burgeoning of stuff, finding it was the problem. So there's another business. We publish journals whose sole function is to help you find the, the papers in the journals you'd already published. <laughs> And so you charge them more for that, because no one can find the bloody stuff. Because <laughs> there's so much of it. Yeah, you know, some people might be considered terrible, but anyway. For instance, he calculated one time that all our stuff was typeset in a single typesetting font. I can't remember what it was, let's say Times Roman, just for the sake of it. And he got some optical device which squeezed Times Roman, so you got more letters per line. So you wouldn't so have to pay so much for paper? paper. And we saved God knows what. 
that was a trick that John Lane resorted to with his limited editions. Okay. Uh, they, they got a lot of fine paper and end cuts, yeah. and they were able to use that. Oh, of course, there's the old advertising trick. If they buy by the line, it's in six points. If they buy by the square centimeters, it's 15 points. <laughs> <laughs> it's bordering on not necessarily deceptive, but his reputation... That was the least deceptive thing. But that was when he went mad, when he owned a newspaper. According to Betty, his widow, who I know quite well, and he's, well, she has got this amazing archive in France, which I've asked if I can ever have access to everything he ever did. I was just in there, and I pulled the file, just opened it, and it was a letter from 1970 or something, Dear Professor Sirs at King's College, London, I think it's a good time to launch a new journal of organic chemistry. You know, come and see me sometime, we'll discuss it. And that letter resulted in something you won't know. It's called Tetrahedron, a journal called Tetrahedron. reads a tetrahedron, that's the shape of a carbon atom. It is organic chemistry, it's another way of saying organic chemistry. And another one called Tetrahedron Letters. The revenues of those two just those two journals today are approximately $100 million. The margins are about $85 million. So I think I can safely say that that letter generated more profit than the whole of trade publishing in London of the whole of the last century. And it does it every year. Genius. He did terrible things afterwards. And he did some pretty bad things at Pergamon. He sacked people. He was a bully. Is this part of any kind of mental, not collapse necessarily, but derangement? Ego derangement. Yeah. Yeah. In the early days, it was just charming and slightly idiosyncratic. Really, later on, it became crazy. If there's another revolutionary idea... Well, uh, I suppose the web... Or someone that really is important to publishing. I mean, the most brilliant person I've ever met in publishing, probably because I don't meet many other people, is a guy called Gitek Trach, who no one else has heard of who has come up with more brilliant ideas than almost anyone. Can you spell that last name? T-R-A-C-Z. He was a Polish-Israeli who came to England to make films, but realized that making feature films is an extremely good way of losing money. So he went into medical film making. He moved rapidly from that into books and created a list of color atmospheres color atmospheres of cardiology or nephrology, beautiful done with slides shows and things like that, which he sold to Harper and Rowe, it was called Gower Medical, realised, as many publishing entrepreneurs do, is you make more money out of selling the company than you do out of selling the books. The Hamlin's example. He took that money and invested it in an idea to do with navigation. Search. Search, yeah. And the idea was that digital technology would explode this. So he set up a series of journals called Current Opinions where scientists would look at all the stuff in their area, write a review of all that stuff, but most importantly, get the citations of all the papers that have been published and give them stars so that people knew not just what was there but whether it was worth reading. Three stars, two stars, one star. Rating them, saving people time. Yeah. That was current opinions. He sold that to Thompson. Then things moved on, and with me, went to work with him. We created something called BioMedNet, which was the first what they'd call a social network for scientists. It was in 1992 or three. And we had this club. You joined the club, and there's a room where you can meet your colleagues virtually. There's a library where you can buy your stuff. There's um, a shop which sells other things. There was a, what we hoped would become a dating agency for scientists. Yeah. Anyway, we built this thing, and it was really quite successful. And we, we then sold it to Elsevier because we knew that they would hate it because it was a threat to their business model and that they'd pay us to close it down. And so it was. But Vitek saw that. A friend of mine described him as a person, he's the only person he's met who can't think in a straight line. Always, always ahead. And he's done amazing things. He's created, uh, I have to say, nearly all the businesses he's made are brilliant. It's, It's really his genius, his ability to foresee the future, to build something to a point and then sell it. And then sell it. But, but the other genius is, 
what the publishers do, they are only about making stuff available. We're not creating the stuff. We don't yeah. like the stuff. It's back to Clarendon Press. You're invisible. You're trying to be as invisible as possible. Right. Your job is to make the scientists communicate with the readers and the, and the publishers and the writers to communicate as effectively as possible. And therefore, we're, we're sort of on the side. We're not in the middle of that. We're watching and trying to build technologies that will help. And he's done that absolutely brilliantly. What's he up to now? He's got something called a faculty of a thousand. His idea there is he thinks peer review is, is over. Now, it's, we all know peer review is a flawed system in that you tend to send it to your mates. And they scratch your back. Scratch your back. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's bound to be. But there's probably no better system. However, it's quite slow. You send the stuff out and they all do it. So VTEC's idea is you publish. Right and then you peer review, and rather than using it as a filter, because frankly, everything gets published anyway. It just goes down the layers to a lower quality journal. Right? Eventually it gets published. So cut all that stuff out, publish first, and he has a faculty of a thousand. Actually, it's more like 10,000. These are scholars around the world who then come in and read the stuff and say, yes, that's good, that's not good, that's very, that's true, so that's false, blah, 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 blah. And it's all, the, all that's visible? When they yeah, and it's, so it's post-publication peer review, if you like. He We're thinks that's the way ahead. That no, could well be. It's costing him a fortune. He's got 200 people working on it. You know what it is? It's, uh, it's like YouTube. It's user content. Yeah. And you're not paying anything for the content. No, no, no. They yeah. have to pay for the organization. Set it up. Yeah. 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 So that's what he's doing. Flipping on to the, to the other side of books, and that is collective. From what we've discussed about innovations, are there any, any books that you think, not to say revolutionized the business, but sort of helped it evolve that, that are particularly uh, impressive from one standpoint or another? Back in about 1980, I was put in charge of the dictionary division of Oxford University Press. And walking around the back of the printing firm, because in those days we had a big print works, there was a skip. And I, I was so nosy. So there in the skip, at the back of the printers, was a whole pile of metal that they were sending off for melting. It was the OED. Okay. Which one? The last hot metal. Yeah, that's that one. They've had it there for years. I managed to rescue 500, and we sold them for too little money in the High Street Bookshop. So that yeah. is the last that I kept that one for myself. Okay. And then, in 1987, those are the first two CD runs of the Oxford English Dictionary, off, off the line, yeah, which the guy kindly gave me. So I sort of somehow think that collectible, or whatever you might call it, right, but right. that is a moment in history. The transition, isn't it? Yeah, of course, this was an intermediary technology anyway, as was that. A bit longer, though. A bit longer, yeah. <laughs> it's extraordinary you should mention that, because yesterday I was interviewing uh, John Randall, if that rings a bell. No. He's run the uh, Whittington Press for 30 years. first book that he published was by Richard Kennedy about his life as a boy at the Hogarth Press. Okay. And the story he told, and he showed me, the same thing. It was Oxford or Cambridge. I think it was Oxford. They were getting rid of the matrixes for all of their typefaces. So he went in there, and he asked if he could have them. And now he's found someone who's going to start reissuing these. Fantastic. And he's going to start selling, selling them. No, brilliant. They it's funny you would show me no, that. Absolutely. The only thing I collect, and it is important, but I don't collect it because of any reason part of my game is that yellow stuff over there. So you showed me the Wisden Cricketer's Almanac. John Wisden was a cricketer and he set up a business making cricket bats. Leicester Square Tube Station is where his office was and there's still a sign on the side of Leicester Square Tube. It's probably the most famous sports book in the world and most revered. Some people call it the Bible of cricket. Stats, things stats like that. Stats and things, yeah. Beyond that, um, it's, it's a record of the game in a more than just statistical way. We call the Bible the wisdom of God. <laughs> this is more reliable than the Bible. Um, collectors pay £150,000 for a set. So it's, it's seriously collectible and beautiful. And it's an amazing thing. More Who publishes it? It's had various owners. The last owner was Paul Getty. And I was trying to buy it for Heidemann, actually, when it came out. It used to be owned by Cricket Bat Manufacturer. They put it on the market. Actually, Maxwell owned it at one stage and tried to change the format. You'll notice it's a rather funny little format. 
he tried to change it quite sensibly except the world cricket went mad <laughs> <laughs> anyway there was an auction between me as it turned out and Paul Getty when I heard who the other one was I said that's fine you can yeah, that's right. you know, I'm not going to win this auction because yeah. he was obsessed by cricket Mick Jagger in, introduced him to cricket this American uh, idiosyncratic person became obsessed by cricket and indeed built sort of a huge stand at Lord's and it was just delighted to own wisdom and then he died and then his son sold it and I was on its board as a non-exec so I, I acquired it for Bloomsbury and it sells out does it? It's oh yeah yeah we sell is 40, it like Harley Davidson motorcycles? well or? we sell 40,000 a year at 45 pounds right. and then there are various other spin-offs obviously it's going digital and I'm working at the moment on Wisdom India because yeah. that's, where the, that's where the business is. That's, that's the only thing I can think of that okay. is collectible in this house. Well, that's glad to see that at least you're doing something on the, on the dark yeah. side. Incidentally, in terms of antiquarian booksellers, there are people who absolutely specialise in wisdom and don't sell anything else. We talked about challenges. Finding good writers is the second uh, major challenge. Who is the best at that, in your opinion? Today. Over your career. I'm finding it hard to answer that, firstly because, you know, it's a big question and how, you know, how yeah. many editors have you met, who's the best, but also because invariably there's a backstory. So, for instance, there's a really good editor who's now at Cape, who was at Secker. When he was running Secker, we got some fantastic books. Roddy Doyle, Irving Walsh. But, you see, Roddy Doyle, for instance, it was actually the rep who spotted the commitment. It was privately published in Ireland. Now, the editor didn't say yeah, no, yeah. but the rep was the one who spotted it, who's not going to become famous. He was a rep. And so, who gets the credit? What was the name of the rep? Yeah, yeah it will come to me. Edwin Hegel. He was a German working in Ireland. These are the unsung uh, heroes of, yeah. the, of the, the business. Absolutely. Yeah? And Irving Walsh, the rights person at Heidemann, was the one who absolutely made the film happen by beating up everyone for train spotting, yeah? And she fought and fought and fought that book, and that's what made it. So I'm, I'm much more, without sounding sort of pretentious about it, I, I sort of do see the thing as a team thing rather than a individuals. Yeah. Think, Although you, it's interesting, isn't it, that the publishers, the early publishers like Jonathan Cape or Grant Richards, yeah. these guys were known as talent because they were the only one. They were it. They were the CEO, publisher. That's business. right. But in my time, it's never been like that. I mean, yes, sorry, there are a few. You know, Andre Deutsch was probably the only one. It's just a different model. It's a different yeah. uh, way of doing business, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also, right now, you've got to think that it's actually the agents who spot them. We have no problem oh, finding true, talent. isn't it? Yeah. We have no problem with finding, you know, working out how much you pay for the talent. It's the challenge. I think the, the question is talent. Talent. Is, I mean, it, it's defined as what sells rather than what's actually really good. A bit of both. We publish a huge number of talented authors, most of whom do not sell. Yeah. But we still think they're very talented, and we keep publishing them. You know, we hope, of course, because we're a business, and sooner or later they, they'll, they'll come good. And then, it, well, of course. There was one famous one that took some time to get going, which was J.K. Rowling. <laughs> yeah, what, what's the story on that one? Is it uh, how long did it take well, to get Rowling? It was actually not that long, but it was years, not well, days. And word of mouth, as you say, uh, really word of mouth into the states. It? Interesting, because the states were slow at publishing it. They didn't publish it. Scholastic didn't publish it for a year or two. So for a while, and because of Amazon's existence, kids were buying it from the UK, Amazon, and oh, they noticed years, that. Yeah. If we look at the third challenge, and that is find uh, enough readers to pay enough money to keep the, the business going, that's what, the marketing, it's all of the above, it's the choice of author, it's, it's everything. The thing, though, that fascinates me is the what that makes the difference. You know, everyone does plus minus the same things. We have a sales force, we put it out, we bribe booksellers to put it in the window, we take ads out, we try to get them on TV and radio, you know, good yep. reviews. But invariably, there's something that changes it, something that made the difference. And it, it varies, and you don't even always know what it was. Like, we were once publishing an autobiography of a spy. We 
anticipated sales of 3,000 copies, and for reasons best known to herself, uh, Margaret Thatcher. Just by catching? Yeah, appointed yeah. herself marketing director on our behalf. <laughs> she yeah. did the best job you could ever do, um, and we sold four or five mil. It's, it's, you know, it's the same story with Lady Charlie's Lover yeah. and Alan Lane. and So that, that was one form of it. In fact, banning is quite a good thing. I was also, I, I was responsible for a slightly outrageous book by Madonna called Sex. And we knew we were there when the Christian right tried to have it banned. It's like, I mean, we can get reviews by everyone, right, or by anyone, and they make little difference frequently. But sometimes the right review by the right reviewer makes all the difference. It's like a catchphrase or a something. That yeah. And, like, for instance, we publish a book which is on the book a short list by a man called Howard Jacobson, who's a Jewish writer, called The Finkler Question. We're also publishing it in the U.S. Now, he's not as well known in the U.S. as he is in Britain. He's not huge here, but we're trying to make him huge. So what would make the difference? And I, I, I absolutely don't know whether this will make the difference, but I've sent a copy uh, with a letter to Larry David in Hollywood, yeah because if anyone can make this guy work to hell the New York Times book review Larry David is the man to understand this book and make it work now that may not work but for every book there's something the genius of the publisher is to come up with that something and then just set it out into Absolutely. the world and yeah. see what happens and, and that means reading the book you've actually got to understand the book you know you can sell to Smiths without reading the book you know, if you really want to come up with the thing that makes the difference. You have to know what's in it. You have to know around the book. You have to know something about the author and where they operate, their environment, their ecosystem. So that's, to me, the most interesting. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, that because uh, I remember admiring uh, what Jamie Bing did with books of the Bible. He's wed them yeah. with really interesting yeah, introducer in, and, and that work. Yeah. If we can wind down or up to the current day by looking at what the challenge is now, and this is how you phrased it, finding the right business models and partners to go forward, ensuring enough multiple groups to market, multiple formats for selling, and multiplicity of marketing ideas. Now, what are those? Now we're talking about selling, okay? We're not talking about finding the books, we're talking about getting rid of them. Incidentally, publishing, right? You can make a 50% margin, gross margin, and then you have an overhead of 40%, which will allow you a 10% profit, right? That's what we aim for, the nice, simple thing. Of the 40% overhead, 10% is for finding the book. 10% is for telling people about it. 10% is for distributing it. And 10% is pay the rent and finance and all the rest of the stuff. It works pretty well, and if you do that, you succeed. If your overhead is 50% and your margin is 40%, you're doomed. And if any of those things get out of kilter, you're doomed, probably. You've got to spend at least as much money making the book, finding it, making it, as you keep telling people about it. So that's your... It's my math. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I started, everyone around me had a degree in English literature. And I had a yeah. degree in science, which is no big deal. But it sort of meant that, that I, mean, I couldn't believe it. They were actually frightened of simple multiplication. <laughs> and, and even today it's an element of uh, you know I don't do that sort of thing and it's not it's really not clever it's just basic so challenges in, in our old world in the print world we had many challenges well not so long ago you sold everything through bookshops and that meant you could have a sales force pointing at bookshops and it didn't actually matter what book you did the law book would go to a bookshop and the kids book would go to a bookshop and the bible would go to a bookshop and the dictionary and indeed the bookshop supplied schools so you, school books would go there then that changed and schools started buying direct so then the bookshop didn't have that role mm -hmm. and so publishers changed and the educational publishers said well you can't just sell one book educational book we've got to have a lot otherwise it doesn't make any sense so we then fell into so legal publishers science publishers children's book publishers, adult book publishers, educational publishers, into these things. And the challenge we had was, on, on the, if you like, the general book side, was that the general bookshop lost a lot of its business, which they didn't know. It wasn't very sexy. 
but actually was probably paying the wages. Well, it was also bringing them into the store. And people in. To and buy these are people. I mean, doctors are people, and they, yeah. buy, they have children, and they, you know. So, so they lost all that, and that's been one of the big problems of why independent bookshops find it quite hard. So that was one set of issues. The next set of issues was, well, the chains came along, and their idea was that it, there was the savings to be made if they integrated marketing, they could buy better, they could screw publishers more, yeah. all that. Well, a bit, but not that successfully, because they're not any more profitable, really, than the independents. So all that's happened is they built an overhead in the centre, which didn't exist. When you had all independent bookstores, you didn't have these people in the middle. All the it was, I suppose, a bit easier for the publishers because they could send one rep into uh, one buyer well, and they'd buy a whole yeah, whack. Yeah, they'd buy the wrong ones because they didn't know what was good. They didn't know what was good in head office, but it was no good for what was in Aberdeen. Anyway, so that was another issue, and they and they forced up discount levels. And then you had the supermarkets, yeah, all the other town stores in America and such like, screaming off the bestseller. Thing. So they now represent sort of forty percent of first week sales of the best book. That's where the bookseller made quite a bit of money, and they were able then to put a diversity of books exactly. on the shelves, exactly. right? right. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so those were the challenges that we've been facing for the last ten years, right? and possibly longer, twenty years. So the average discount has gone up. The average discount we grant. Uh, the average sales have not. The average selling price has come down. So. For what I think books are incredibly good value, yes. incredibly good, and yet we're charging less and less for them, which seems to be both stupid economically, but also stupid psychologically. You're saying to your customers, you know, the product's not worth much. Each time I go into a big box store, you go to the bargain section, and you can come up with some fantastic yes. books for, you know, under 5 or $10, no, right? Absolutely. It's just... It's just Anyway, it's exciting I, from a buyer's perspective, yeah. but as you say, long-term for the industry... It's, it's probably not good. Anyway, yeah. so that, that's where we are right now, except we now have this new thing, which is e-books, digital delivery. And here we're, we're facing another set of challenges in that most of the people involved in this are not national. So the, when we talk about the chain stores, they're actually national. You have Barnes & Noble and Borders, you have Smiths and Maudstons, you have Angus and Robertson and Whitcalls and... Chapters. And chapters in Canada, of course and exclusive editions in South Africa, they were national, by and large. Now we're talking international, started with Amazon, clearly. We have now three, at least three, huge global gorillas crawling over our industry, Amazon, Google, and Apple. Then there are some sort of heavyweight great apes, Sony, I guess, uh, Kobo, Libri in Germany, a few others. I'm sure I've missed out, so anyway, don't know. And then you've got lots of little ones. And when I talk there about multiplicity, I think it, it's absolutely essential that everyone gets the stuff. So the challenge is that... We you were thrilled, though. You were, you, you were very pleased to have these really exceptional companies coming into the absolutely, publishing business. Absolutely. I think it's fantastic. The danger is, if we allow them to dictate, as Apple are trying to do, that what's really good is they can fight with each other. We don't want to talk. And the more product they put out there, fantastic. The challenge is how do we hold our nerve and say what we've got is worth having and it's worth paying for and we shouldn't give it away. We should hang on to it. The copyright is incredibly strong and valuable. We're very lucky to have it. Don't let's let people erode that and don't listen to this sort of consumers always right. Actually, we owe it to our authors to protect their copyright and to protect their income streams. So it is challenging because, you know, if Amazon say, I want that, and if we don't do it, your books aren't going to be up on Kindle. That's quite a powerful weapon. On the other hand, we have a powerful weapon, because what use is Kindle if it can't supply all the books in the world that it should? It is a bit like the net book agreement in the sense that publishers have to unite to have any clout, I would think. Um, it's strange. I, I'm not sure that's right. Uh, theoretically, at one level, that's, that's a perfectly valid, and it may, you, you may be right and I'm wrong. However, I just have this thing that if all the publishers were stupid and gave away their books but one who happened to have Harry Potter said no that one is more powerful than Amazon that, that one back at the turn of the 20th century was Dent they held out and it wasn't Macmillan it was Dent but anyway that you know, idea if you're a retailer you have to offer what people want you so if you've got something that got they don't have they're, they're in a weak position Particularly if you got back to my multiplicity. If they're the only show in town, then you're dead. But if you can say, no, 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 Sony haven't got it, 
but Apple do. Okay. That gives us incredible powers. Well, it's a very unique product, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank goodness, everything we do. What I like about this, from a consumer standpoint, is that I can fill my Kindle or whatever it is with thousands of out-of-copyright yeah. books for nothing. Yeah, absolutely. For now, anyway. Yeah. Well, no, I, it's the, fo the focus really is not on reprint anymore. It's on finding great new talent. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a challenge. The challenge I don't think, but which Jamie does, and various other people do, and again, I'm probably wrong there, right, is the opportunity to add value to books through apps and uh, enhanced things and bits of video and all that. I think that's perfectly okay. I'm not against it. But I don't think that's the big deal for, for publishers. Our big deal is finding good, great writers and getting their text out there. And sometimes that text will be made into a film. But we don't have to be filmmakers to do it. You just make more books because the film demands it. Absolutely. And the same I feel with apps. Not universally true, because there's some things will only be an app. But by and large, if someone wants to make an app out of one of our books, I say, yes, but you do it. <laughs> Let us focus on what we do, which is find talent, market that talent. You know, we're not printers either. Outsource. So whilst I'm, I hope I'm anything but a Luddite, I, you know, I'm really behind on this digital stuff and and my public library project which I'm obsessed by I don't go down the app route and the enhanced editions route I, I think that's something for someone else to do rather than us but the library project is the thing I just think is pretty I, I better ask you about that what is do you it? know what it is? no I think public libraries are really important things and particularly actually for immigrants coming in or new people coming into a country where you know, it's a community meeting space. It's a meeting space, but it's more than that. It's an educational opportunity. It's something... Anyway, it's really important. Everywhere in the world, they're under threat. Economically, and they're under threat technologically because they're perceived to be old technology, fuddy-duddy, and, you know, not past the 21st century. It turns out if you don't have great books, that people don't go. You can put as many yoga classes out on in a library, but that's not what it's for. People go to libraries for books, and they go for the best books. And, and, and if you don't fund it properly, you will lose... Anyway, it's a general thing. It's a personal thing. I just think it's terrible. So just park that. From a business point of view, if you've got people who are under pressure, librarians, maybe, and, but they still have a budget. If someone comes to them and says, I've got something really great for you, and I love you, and this could help you, then they're likely to be responsive. So there's a thing called a site license in scientific publishing, which is where you have a journal, Harvard says, yes, we'd like it. Everyone on the campus can read the stuff. They pay the publisher. And it's fantastic. It pushes access up. And so is there a way with fiction to do such a thing? And we can't sell a subscription to a book. But you could sell a subscription to a bookshelf. Your list? Yeah, or, or something. So we've created, so far, 20 themed shelves. We shelf Bloom within Bloomsbury? Yeah, well, within yeah. Bloomsbury, it goes beyond. Okay. So a themed shelf might be teenage fiction, or American history, or, I don't know, self-help. The library, uh, and these are digital, the library can subscribe to those on behalf of its people and we charge 0.1 of a penny. 250 bucks for? For 250,000 people, if you, that's what you serve for an annual subscription. How many books would that be in total then? Well, it's about 8 or 10 on a shelf. Look at various. The user can get in anywhere on any internet-enabled device. The password is their library card number. The librarian has very little technology to do. We don't. The overhead cost of acquiring this is peanuts because they don't have to catalogue or classify and all the stuff librarians do. They get a tick box for technology from their owners. They can budget. They know what it is. It's a subscription. They know how many they have for the coming year. So we launched it a year ago in England with Bloomsbury stuff. We now have, I think it's 17 library authorities, that represent 7.5 million people, have taken between, I think, 5 and 20 of the shelves that we've got. Uh, it's still small. Yeah. Um, it's more money for them, too, though. It's, it's more money. money. That's more money for us. We've opened it now, though, to all publishers, so we've stopped calling it Bloomsbury. It's called Public Library Online. So now Canongate are in, and Faber have put up a poetry shelf, and... Um, Quirkers have put up some stick glass and da, 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 da. We've got a list as long as there are other people wanting to join. The user cannot download. You just go to the site. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're viewing it. It's largely PDFs. We will put some HTML up. We're now taking international. 
this could be, I mean, on the one hand, it's quite a good business because it's subscription business, back to subscriptions is good. But more importantly, this could be a way, particularly in developing countries, of libraries reinventing themselves because I, I was in India last week. The purpose was to persuade this guy that they should fund every citizen of India to have access to a public library digitally. So who chooses what books go on the shelf? We do. Well, anyway, yeah, the librarian chooses what they want. Uh, within the shelf, publisher chooses, the librarian chooses whether they want that shelf or not. So, so you dictate what goes into the library? No, we just what goes on the shelves. And the librarian can choose what shelves they want. So if I do, for instance, I'm doing a Liz Gilbert shelf, you think very large shelf, that's, that's Liz Gilbert. They can't say I want one book and not that one. They take the shelf or they don't take the shelf. That's, that's, that's their call. Yeah. It's like a bit like bundling cable stations, yeah, exactly. channels. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, we're going to have, we think we're going to have a thousand shelves. Bloomsbury or no, the, the organization? The, the whole thing. Forget Bloomsbury now. Okay. This is a, an aggregating machine. And so the librarians, they know what people are requesting, so that that will drive... Yeah. Oh, they know what their demographic is, most importantly. So right. do they want more children's shelves? Do they want more adult shelves? Do they have a big retired element of the population who are interested in war history? It's not cannibalizing your business, necessarily. You're, you're still going to get a piece of this. Yeah, yeah we, th we think it's going to promote reading. And in fact, all the libraries, in the 12 months we've been running, and they've been doing research on it, suggests that it's quite hard to read this stuff on screen, you know? At this point, it's getting better and better. It's getting better, but even so, we're always... It, they don't own the thing, they're only borrowing it. So, you know, they've got to be connected, but, you know? But what the librarians are saying, if people say, can we buy the e-book, or can we, buy the, can we borrow the print book? So it's actually, <laughs> it, it's actually a promotional tool. Uh, so absolutely no problem. I mean, one or two publishers worried about cannibalization, and I say, you know, guys, I don't think so, but if you see one element of cannibalization, you've got this wonderful thing, stop it. And you don't have to. <laughs> because with a subscription, you don't have to carry on. It's funny, you know, that goes again, that goes back more than a hundred years when they had the lending libraries. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's trying to do just that. Absolutely. But it's particularly, I mean, this developing world thing, because they don't have the money to put infrastructure Right. Build thousands of libraries. But this they can do. And, and the nice thing is that they don't, they, they, they don't spend their money on all those infrastructure things, which has done nothing to do with the reading, Absolutely. does it? It's so all about the reading. There's no overhead, there's no bricks, there's no, you know, you're putting nothing in the way. Yeah. Because it's free at the point of use. They don't have to put in the credit card, they don't have to do anything, and yet the author is being rewarded properly. We pay a royalty on the sort of 25% we pay. Right. No secrets. We pay 25% of everything we get to the author. So, so they don't have to worry about uh, public lending rights, income, because they can. Huh. So there you go. The nice thing, too, is it makes sense that the more you think about it, the more yeah. appealing it becomes. Yeah, well, I've been thinking about it for a year, and it hasn't, I haven't yet come, come up, up with, with an objection, sort of yeah. How, do you, how can we finish this off? We can, I could just leave it at that. that that's a pretty great place to leave it. Is there anything you want to say about where we're at? I, I, okay, let me just think. I think I can safely say, I've, I've been in the business since, since, since 38 years. Yeah. That'd I must make you be about 10 when you got in? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I must be coming up for my 40th Frankfurt book fair. And I think I can safely say that, first of all, I would never have swapped. I mean, I only got into the business by chance, because I wanted to be a journalist, and it was a way of getting a, a union card. Gordon Graham said exactly the same oh, thing. Really? Yeah. yeah, it was exactly the same thing. Yeah. He was a journalist in India, I think. So I wouldn't, I mean, it was just chance. Anyway, I wouldn't, wouldn't swap it for anything else I could possibly have done. When I was invited to be president of the Publishers Association. I was very hesitant about taking that job because normally you lose your job while you're president of the place. It's a bit of a tradition, including Gordon Crabbe. <laughs> um, so I was a bit hesitant. And I, so I, before I accepted, I was at a meeting at the council the president, as just a member. Yeah. And I looked around the room, and there were 20 people on the council. And I realised that all of them were friends, not just business you know, I'd had a beer with them at one bit, some better than others, but actually, they were all friends. I thought, well, that's a hell of a thing. I don't mind hanging, out with, my hanging out with my friends. This industry is still like that, much more than, I think, I suspect many other industries. But also, that after this near 40 years, 
it is more interesting today than it has ever been. I think I can safely say more challenging, more energizing, more fun, and more opportunities to do what we're paid to do, which is to link writers and readers. And that's that's it then. It's the joy of what linking, linking. linking. That's what's so exciting for you. Yeah, absolutely. Watching what happens. Yeah. It's not the discovery of new talent because, in a way, I think that's relative. It's not easy. No, but, but it happens. There's a lot of luck in there and all sorts of things. But actually, the practicalities of linking writer and reader seems to me the, the fun bit. The the joy of watching an idea spread out all over the yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. And and you were there at the beginning sort of thing yeah yeah great well thanks for being here at the beginning and, and at the end <laughs> uh, I've been talking with uh, Richard Charkin who is currently executive director of Bloomsbury Publishing in London and we're sitting in your lovely backyard interrupted occasionally by the odd airplane and helicopter thanks again thanks a lot.